Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 83, Islamic History, 622, The Factions of Medina. At the beginning of the American Revolution, there was a hope that America would be a country without factions, without political parties. Now, the dangers were known. Pretty much every heavyweight of the American Revolution warned against what they called factions. And the risk of allowing factions to thrive were obvious, to them at least. You know, it would create a political culture based on lies and a fractious nation and the tyranny of minorities and the promotion of unprincipled and mediocre men. They saw modern America coming. You know, but for all their other accomplishments, they just couldn't do much to stop it. Which is saying something, because the American Republic, it was founded by a surprisingly observant generation of people who were particularly observant when it came to human nature and how that could be put to work for good, or alternatively, it could devolve into tyranny. And this eye for human nature can be easily forgotten, particularly with the modern state of things in the United States as it is now. You know, like in Washington today, it's a place where Congress and the executive branch just routinely, just and people don't even notice anymore. It's so routine. They enact laws and policies that are written for a different species. You know, and, and writing laws and policies that will work wonderfully, you know, if only human nature changes entirely within the next fiscal year. You know, visionaries, these people are not. Because, as the founders feared, modern Washington is populated almost entirely with mediocre, self obsessed, unthinking lunkheads. I mean, seriously, I've seen this firsthand. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. In my journalism days, I talked to a few politicians, actual members of Congress, and most are even dumber in real life than they are on television. The very idea of critical thought makes them look like concussion victims. Again, I've seen this firsthand. I saw this in person. They can't explain their positions even off the record and with no cameras present. Now, I won't bore you with the details. I don't want to be needlessly cruel, but let's just say if you can't say anything nice, you don't say anything at all. But I will say this. You know, there, there was one particular congressional blockhead who gifted me a life-changing exchange. You know, it was one of those moments. It happens once in a while when you go, oh, okay. A sudden epiphany, a realization that, oh, this isn't what you think it is. It's some other thing. You know, like, I, I understand it. I get it. You know, and what I realized in that moment that was so valuable to me was that this person, at least in this iteration of his personality, is not someone really worth talking to or listening to. Like, you will learn nothing. This person knows nothing. It's time to move along. You know, and once you have enough of those oh moments with government officials, you kind of get an idea of the type of person that the founders feared. 
because this was a typical congressman, you know, somehow one of 500 plus members of Congress, and yet not our best and brightest, not even close. Politics is just not a meritocratic industry, at least in my country. You know, it, it doesn't elevate geniuses and men of substance. So how does a person like this rise so high in the first place? Uh, it's, it's the party system, factions, the eternal bane of the idealistic and intelligent statesman. You know, this is the person that is the result of factions running out of control. Now, of course, the founders saw it, they warred against it, and yet the country devolved into warring groups almost as soon as the Constitution was ratified. And now that's how the era is taught historically, through the Federalists like Alexander Hamilton and the Democratic Republicans, and then later on to the Whigs and the Democrats and eventually the Republicans. So I gave you another long preamble here, and you know, you're probably wondering, what do I care about American history? This is called Islam for Christians. You know, why is this relevant to 622 Medina? It's a demonstration that even among a group which despised factions and tried to avoid them, that time period of the American founding is still best understood through the lens of factions which is a tragic irony, of course. And in this case, I'm using it to lay the groundwork for Medina in 622. Because Muhammad did not want factions any more than George Washington did. The entire reason he was there, Muhammad, I should say, the entire reason Muhammad was there was to unite the people and end the petty squabbles. And of course, Muhammad had just founded a religion with only one faction, Islam. A Muslim was a Muslim. You know, that came before and transcended any other superficial division. At least it was supposed to. But humans are still humans. And even religious humans are still humans. So Muhammad's plan for his community was shattered pretty much upon stepping foot in Medina. Factions are almost as much a, a force of nature as a, as a human phenomenon, and Medina would be no different. And this same phenomenon would not even be limited to Medina, or even Muhammad. This would be a thing throughout Muslim history long after Muhammad's death, so just keep that in mind. But back to 622. In this time period just to understand the basic landscape of it all. You have to know at least five different groups of people in Medina. And among those five, each belong to one of three larger groups. Maybe those are the, the key, those, these, the big three. You know, if you have to memorize anything, memorize these three groups. Uh, because as things later devolve, the various packs and understandings between these groups will just be critical. So think three and then five. If you can't remember five, that's fine. But really remember the, the first three I'm going to give you. And also remember these groups often overlap, uh, particularly with conversions to Islam and resistance to conversion and so on. A person can be in more than one group. Uh, they often were. So who are the big three? 
the three to remember are the Muslims, the Arab tribes, and the Jews. If you remember nothing else, remember these three. You have the Muslims, the major Arab tribes, and the Jews. If you want to expand it to five groups, uh, the Muslims have two major groups, as do the Arabic tribes. You know, the Muslims are divided into the helpers, who are the Muslims who have always lived in Medina, and the emigrants, those who have made the journey to Mecca. And then you have the Arab tribes, who are divided into the two major warring factions, the Aus and the Khazraj. And then, of course, there are the Jews of Medina, to make it five. I'll start with the Muslims first. There were two major cultures that needed to be bridged to create a single community in Medina. And it's actually very similar to the early church, with the tensions between uh, Christians of Jewish descent and the ones who lived in the larger Greco-Roman world. The cultural divide, of course, was huge. Now, the Muslim divide was not nearly as large as those between uh, the two groups of Christians, but there were many differences between the helpers and the immigrants. Again, the helpers were those who had always lived in Medina, drawn mostly from the Aus and Khazraj tribes. In Arabic, these people were called Ansar, and the immigrants were the new arrivals from Mecca, called Muhajira. So, helpers and immigrants. I should note that's emigrants with an E, not an immigrant. An emigrant is someone who leaves a country. An immigrant is someone who moves to a new country. It's kind of the same thing, but you see the emphasis on the emigration with an E there. The part being emphasized is the place that they left, that they are refugees from Mecca. So Muhammad's job now was to turn them into Medinan immigrants with an eye. The emigrants from Mecca became increasingly perplexed by the outbreak of tribal hostilities among their Muslim brothers who had always lived in Medina, because they were supposed to be one community. But many of the helpers still saw themselves by their tribal identities, and fights would often break out. Uh, one famous brawl came after what I can best describe as a reading of war poetry. Uh, the Arabics took their poetry very, very seriously, thus the power of the Quran in this society. And it was clear that the helpers did not quite understand what the emigrants did about Muslim brotherhood. Among the emigrants, no one really cared about tribes. You know, they, they were Muslims. That's it. And that's what Muhammad had wanted for the helpers as well. You know, these two Muslim groups, the, the immigrants and the helpers, they were just very different in, in profession and in culture. You know, because the immigrants were merchants. You know, in modern parlance, we'd probably call them urban professionals. I mean, not all, of course, just in general. On the other hand, the helpers in Medina were mostly farmers. So... In my country, this would be like putting a group of New Yorkers with some people from rural Kansas. You know, there would be culture shock on both sides. Um, you know, the Meccans, 
they they were more educated and more engaged in commerce and more used to having others do their violence for them, which is just like an urban dweller in my country. You know, they, they have higher incomes and more years of education and they don't carry weapons themselves. You know, violence is outsourced to a specific group of other professionals. Whereas the Medinans, the helpers, they were more rural, you know, they, they were farmers. They worked with their hands and they fought all the time and they did it themselves. This was a land of frontier justice. And, you know, even the most well-meaning of people in this situation are going to have a hard time becoming a single community. So to bridge this divide, um, Muhammad made an interesting move, a brilliant one, actually, looking back. Muhammad paired up each Muslim male with a Muslim of the other faction, and in a very serious way, because these people were to be brothers in faith and in every way conceivable. They would share and be charitable toward each other. You know, if you had two coats and your brother had none, you'd give him one. Same with other material possessions. And this even extended to an exchange of wives on some occasions. Uh, it's like, hey, I got two wives. You want one? Sure. You know, you're my brother. And it was a very legal thing, too, because for a few years, these packs really were family bonds for means of inheritance and, and all of that. So this helped meld the two Muslim factions. And at the same time, it also chipped away at the Arab tribal factions. Remember, those are the Aus and the Khazraj. At least among the Muslims, this worked. You know, and they began to see themselves as Muslims more than as a member of a tribe. Of course, that only applied to the converted. You know, and even among the converted, old loyalties can die hard. Earlier on, I described the Aus and the Khazraj, I think in a previous episode, as the Hatfields and the McCoys of Arabia. It was a reference to a famous frontier feud in America, which is more than a century ago. Now, a more modern comparison might be the former Yugoslavia, if you want to think of it that way. Now, for those of you who may be under, say, 40 years old or so, Yugoslavia in the 1990s, it collapsed and it devolved into a horrific orgy of violence, uh, ethnic cleansing, genocide, war atrocities, and it seemed to go on forever. Like, if I had to give you a start and an end date, I give you a start date, kind of you know, around the fall of the Soviet Union, but when it ended, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, and, and as a child watching all of this, I was often perplexed by how much these people really, really seemed to hate each other. Because as an outsider, to me, looking through the TV, they looked the same and they talked the same, at least in my eyes. I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. And how could they even tell each other apart? Now, of course, I would have looked like an idiot to anyone there. You know, they knew the difference between a Serbian and a Croat and a Bosnian and so on. And once the blood flows, it's just really hard to stop it. Same thing in Medina. That's why Muhammad was there in the first place. Now, keep in mind that the Aus and the Khazraj had just fought a horrible, bloody battle not too long before Muhammad actually got there. And if you were one of them, would you be so quick to forget the people who killed your father, 
or your son or your friend. And the Aus and the Khazraj had been fighting for so long that they were just, they were known as fighters, not surprisingly. You know, these were hard people, just like, you know, in my country, at least, if you meet someone from the former Yugoslavia, or really Eastern Europe or the old Soviet bloc in general, you just kind of assume this is a hard person, a tough person, someone built of iron. Same with the Aus and the Khazraj. They were like that. And if, since we're talking about those battles, I should bring in the group that I have not talked much about yet, and that would be the Jews. Because all those previous battles, they also had another element to them, another involved party. Because during all those battles, each Arab tribe was often aligned with a number of the Jewish tribes in the area. So these were often three and four way fights. The Jews weren't exactly a united group in Medina, but they're often talked about in that way, which, funny enough, it does become more appropriate as time goes on because um, eventually the Jews become more and more of a block, you know, because the Aus and the Khazraj were converting. Muhammad even got a reluctant conversion from a man named Ibn Ubay, who was actually going to rule Medina until Muhammad came along. You know, I mean, he wasn't officially the ruler, but, you know, he was in prime position to, to grab that title. Now, this person, he only converted to avoid irrelevance. And he was the epitome of what the Muslims would come to call hypocrites. But if this person was Jewish, this would not have been the case. Over the first few years after the Hijra, being an Arab in Medina slowly became synonymous with being a Muslim. So the Jews, by sticking with their religion, started to become known more by their religion than just by their tribe. So eventually it was Arabs versus Jews, and then basically Muslims versus Jews. So to summarize, you don't want to think of the Jewish pe you know, people in Medina as a block until Muhammad came along. So before 622, the Jews were, you know, different tribes with different interests. And then just eventually as Muhammad came, more united, basically identified by their religion. So in the time period we're talking about, if you just want to call the Jews the Jews, regardless of tribe, I, I think that's fair, you know. With anything else, it's slightly more complex than that, but I think that's accurate. Now, the Jewish reaction to Muhammad, politically at least, was reluctant acceptance in these early days. On the one hand, they welcomed him at first because he could end the constant civil wars. You know, no one really likes that, obviously, but the Jewish tribes had been able to increase their power at the expense of the feuding Arabs. So in one way, the feuding tribe was good for the Jews in that they could at least divide the Arabs, you know, and, and survive that way. But again, their people are fighting in these wars too, and no one likes that. Now, again, when I say the Jews, I'm talking about them as a block, which of course, before Muhammad, is not super accurate. So 
the Jews as a block after Muhammad came definitely saw that this was a bad thing. That's <laughs> because it was becoming apparent that Muhammad was eroding their power. And as the Aus and the Khazraj continued to convert in large numbers, this became a huge political disadvantage because the divide was no longer tribal. It was religious. So now this was just the Jews, you know, the Jews as a single block, you know, they couldn't, well, not that they could, it was harder to splinter and play to your advantage, the tribal divisions. And the Jews would eventually be on the short end of this shift, of course. You know, all those old alliances with either the Aus or the Khazraj tribes, they just went up in smoke. You know, and increasingly, neither Jew nor Arab had much in common. Although this arrangement wasn't still all bad for the Jews, and again, Jews as a block, this is... You know, maybe in 622 is kind of when the Jewish tribes become the Jews. You know, now the Jews would be equal with the Muslims, and the two signed a pact of mutual defense. So if either group, Jews or Muslims, if either group were attacked by pagans, the other was obligated to help. Muhammad would mediate disputes. Um, and that's kind of the kicker. And <laughs> so if you look at the, the Constitution of Medina, you know, it's like, oh, if there's a question about any of this, Muhammad will mediate it. Now, in a real world sense, the Jews were increasingly at a disadvantage because imagine you're a Muslim living in Italy. Now, you are told you have equal rights and your religion will be respected. Oh, and any dispute that you have with the Christians will be mediated by the Pope. If you're a Muslim, how confident are you that you are going to prevail in that situation? You know, regardless of how nice a guy the Pope might be. The basis for this agreement was a document called the Constitution of Medina. It guarantees the equality of the tribes and equality of the religions and puts forth, you know, mutual obligations from each group. But Again, from a Jewish perspective, which isn't given very often when talking about Muslim history, you just, you can't help but notice that throughout the document, Muhammad is referred to as the messenger of God. I mean, that's on paper. <laughs> like, really, who is going to argue with that? He, he's not a president or a mediator or even a king. He's the messenger of God. So he's the one who is really in charge. And as I think I referenced earlier, historically speaking, this was the end of a very long slide out of power for the Jews of Medina. It was the beginning of the end. And they had been there for a very, very long time. Some had been there maybe a millennia. And some had come after the Romans had dispersed Palestine in the year 70. Yeah, and they used to be in charge in this place. You know, back in the day, they had the best land and castles and power, but the arrival of the Arab tribes, and by this I'm talking about even a few hundred years before Muhammad, you know, with the arrival of the Arab tribes, the, the Aus and the Khazraj, it slowly whittled away at their power. And now, 
it's 622. And in a few years, Medina will be gone forever, as far as the Jews are concerned. But for now, the Jews were still an important faction in Medina, or Yathrib, as they would probably like to call it. In 622, like I said, there were five factions. The emigrants, the helpers, those are two Muslims, the Aus and the Khazraj, Arab tribes, and then the Jewish tribes. And soon after that, it was down to three. The Muslims, the Arabs, and the Jews. And soon afterward, it would just be Muslims and Jews in Yathrib. So all those factions basically got whittled down to two, just like in the early days of the United States of America. But for the time being, it's still 622. So politically and militarily, the Jews and Muslims of Yathrib or Medina, they were one force. Now, Muhammad was not happy that the Jews were sticking with their religion, but he wasn't kicking up much of a fuss about it at this point, because the bigger enemy was still out there. The people that they had fled, you know, the people who didn't squabble about religion because they didn't really have any religion, <laughs> and that would be the pagans, the Meccan pagans. That's the conversion Muhammad wanted more than any other at this point. If the Jews converted, it would be a spiritual victory and a spiritual comfort. But if the Meccans converted, particularly the Quraysh tribe, Muhammad would basically be the king of Arabia. Now, in one story from this time, uh, you may or may not have heard this, but in, in early Medina, in the early days, uh, a man named Bilal, you may remember him as the former Abyssinian slave and a man of iron faith. Bilal was known for his loud and beautiful voice. You know, I always think of him sounding kind of like an opera singer, you know, a, a big voice that can project a great distance. Now, Bilal, it was his job every morning to climb the highest building in Medina and give the call to prayer. However, at this time, according to some stories, he would pray aloud as well for the conversion of the Quraysh, and he would do it before the call to prayer. So the Muslims had not forgotten the Meccans, not at all, particularly the people of Bilal's faction, the emigrants. And remember that title. They had come from somewhere, not to somewhere. And even as their faction blended into the other ones, that part remained. You know, for many, Mecca was still their home, and the Quraysh was still their prime enemy. And the emigrants, as this distinct group, would be the ones that would actually start attacking Quraysh caravans uh, uh, very soon. You know, in a few years, it turns into sort of a, a pan-Muslim thing. But at first, it's just the emigrants who are doing this. Because, again, they did not forget. They didn't forget their home. They didn't forget who kicked them out. They didn't forget who their enemies were. And for many of them, they didn't forget who stole their land and their property and all of that. And really, the story here is timeless which is why I gave the introduction that I did. 
It's timeless. This happens again and again. You reconcile factions, unite factions, and then use that new faction to go and fight another faction. And the cycle repeats forever and ever and ever. As true for Muhammad as it was for Caesar or Machiavelli or von Bismarck. And really, it should be noted that even from a secular perspective, Muhammad was just as good at all of this than any of those historical giants. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.